0: welcome to this summer edition of The Crit. Uh, most of the design world may be off on their holidays, but not us. We're, we're here and we're working hard.
1: Yes, we're stuck in while all those lucky bees are off on their holidays. It's a real shame. I would like to be on holiday, but alas, we have news to report on.
0: Yes, I do love it though when the uh, the out-of-office newsletters come in from design studios as they merrily announce that they're off to the beach.
1: Yeah, taking all of July off or all of August off. But we have a journal to make, should say. The next issue of Desania will be coming out in September. So it's very much noses to the grindstone at the moment. India, if you were to take a holiday, uh, a holiday of the mind, where would, you, where would you be holidaying?
0: I think it's suddenly become very chic to do a kind of um, ironic, all-inclusive holiday.
1: Oh right, yeah. What Thomas Cook is,
0: yeah, where you kind of go and you get like all of your meals included, brightly coloured drinks, um, you know, uh, ridiculous dance lessons and aqua aerobics. (laughs) Uh,
1: Friendships for life with fellow British tourists you never stay in touch with afterwards because you suddenly realise oh they were awful.
0: Um, yeah, so, so if I had a free week, that's what I would be booking. But I don't think that I'd get out of the country because at the moment, it seems like airports, ferries and Eurostar are all collapsing in upon themselves.
1: We're cut off. We're cut off from the rest of the world. We finally achieved what we've wanted all along and now we don't like it
0: trapped on this hot and sticky island.
1: Well, in the spirit of that, shall we try and make some contact with the outside world? We'll make some uh, bridges of news. Let's use news as a way to understand what else is going on outside of Great Britain. So the first piece of news we're going to be looking at today was the reports that broke this month that uh, Johnny Ive is to end his working relationship with Apple. According to the New York Times, Ive and Apple have agreed to stop working together, uh, terminating the $100 million multi-year contract that they'd signed with Ive's love from design firm. Now, not confirmed yet, but pretty widely reported, so worth reflecting on, I think. And quite major news. Johnny Ive and Apple have really been one of the big design success stories of the last few decades. And if this agreement comes to an end that's going to be the first time since 1992 that i've hasn't worked for apple so potentially a real changing of the guard
0: it's uh it's kind of been a slow process of decoupling he he did leave apple in 2019 but he set up his own studio called love from um and the agreement as far as i understand it was that they would continue working together with an exclusivity clause but you know, there again, there's been no official statements, but reading the rumours and between the lines, um, reports have kind of stated that that I was transitioning out of working for Apple even while he was there. He went from being full time to part-time. Um there were reports that he was feeling burnt out, which big mood. Um and that
1: <laughs> Johnny doesn't want to work. Johnny's tired. <laughs>
0: You would be burnt out if you'd been working since nineteen ninety two to produce some of the most iconic pieces of of technology there were There's been speculation he was feeling more isolated at the company since Steve Jobs passed away um and the The Apple direction has um really kind of significantly changed. You might not be able to notice it from its branding, which has stayed relatively consistent. But Tim Cook has now been focusing far more on on operations, on a more kind of technocratic mode of operation. Um, So, you know, perhaps this new system isn't really working out for IVE.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, Steve Jobs was a big design guy. He was someone who put a huge amount of faith on that and really pushed IVE and saw design as central to Apple, what built it up. Like you say, uh, Tim Cook, at least if you believe the reports and he challenges some of these, not so much a design guy, less interested in that. He likes uh, making things run smoothly, producing laptops on time and to cost. So like you say, I think he's, he's probably, it's fair to say, been less personally involved in the design team at Apple. And that seems to have been a big blow to Ive. I think he had a very productive working relationship with Steve Jobs. Sure, it wasn't always easy. I mean, all the stories you hear about Jobs sounds like a nightmare to work with in lots of ways. But someone who I think also could be quite inspiring and probably that was really productive. I mean, the reasons given as to why this new relationship with Love From is coming to an end are very similar to the ones you just set out, India, so apparently some Apple executives have been questioning how much money they were paying to Ive and Love From, that 100 million contract suddenly coming under scrutiny. And again, maybe that's a sign of a company that doesn't quite have the faith in design as it once did. I think the other side is Ive seems a little bit fed up from it. You mentioned he had an exclusivity contract um, that's prevented him from taking certain other clients. You know, if there's anyone who might be seen as a competitor to Apple, Johnny I almost certainly can't go and work for them, design hardware for them. I think one of the big things is Apple doesn't necessarily produce that much new hardware anymore, at least in terms of new product categories anyway. I mean, India, when we discussed this before, you, uh, you challenged me on this, right? You pointed out the uh, AirBuds.
0: Yes, because you said they'd done nothing new, but then we have the AirPod Maxes, which um, I didn't come across due to the normal uh, channels of, you know, Apple leaks or the the famous once a year launches, but actually through celebrity paparazzi photos, oh. with, um, you know, your deeds and the like wandering around with these around their neck. And I think they kind of look like a sci-fi dystopian version of air traffic controller (laughs) headphones. Have you seen them? They're kind of massive. They look like you've got two Apple mice, like, strapped to your ears. Um, I mean, they are also prohibitively expensive, something like over 500 quid, I think, for a pair of headphones. Um, And I think it's kind of ironic after they forced us all to switch to wireless Earbuds that fall out of your ears at every possible opportunity, and now now they're getting everyone back into the retro <laughs> over the ear headphones. Like Sneaky
1: athlers. But I, th- I think okay, a couple of newish product categories, but but certainly they've moved a little bit from their heyday where they were developing these new categories like tablets, the iPhone, all the time, which must have been an amazing time to work there as an industrial designer.
0: Yeah, they're just riffing off the theme now. And with these accessory changes, they're part of what I would say is this ground a program to kind of keep people within the closed Apple system. You know, once you <laughs> buy one Apple loot. product, you're tied in. <laughs> but you are. You you have to subscribe to Apple Music, you have to download all of your apps from the App Store. They kind of once you have one of these devices instead of the device being this um, you know piece of design that signifies your kind of connection to the future it's more of a portal for the company to collect your information and sell you n- new products and software as a service.
1: yeah, I think so. I think that's probably true. I mean if you look at the um, new laptops, new versions of the phone coming out from Apple, We're now kind of into the annual iteration where, okay, the phone maybe switches between having uh, blunter squared off corners or a more rounded form and it just goes back and forth. The laptops, okay, technically they get more impressive every year, but in terms of the industrial design, it's a little bit riffing on the same theme, which I imagine is a fairly thankless task. Like you say, where they seem to be doing a lot more is in these development of new. Services, the fitness, Apple Music, Apple Television, that kind of seems to be the new focus for Apple, right?
0: Yeah, and I think it's the focus for a lot of companies. Um, there was the horrified reaction this month to the news that BMW, the car makers, are. Going new ways with their subscription services. They'd already tried to get people to subscribe to kind of Spotify or GPS services, but now they've gone one step further, and um, because everything is run by software these days everything's you know chips and automated processes the heated seats in bmw they can um remotely turn them off and then you'd have to subscribe to turn them on again is that for real yep they they've done it in south korea i believe and uh they're being quite cagey about which other markets they will be rolling it out to but the idea is that you'd subscribe kind of 18 dollars a month or you'd do an annual package or you'd maybe do the kind of lifetime executive <laughs> package for 400 and something dollars to have you know complete access to your heated seats
1: well i have to say this is a stratford family tragedy because my dad he, dri- he drives a bmw he loves his heated seat he calls it a heaty seaty and it's very nice for keeping his ass in tip-top condition as he goes on his drives. This is an outrage that they might, to my father, <laughs> thinking of doing this. It's disgusting. Um,
0: but yeah, I think you make a really good point that it must be quite boring for designers because, you know, Johnny Ive was there for the heyday of Apple back when they did all sorts of wild and exciting things. I... Vividly remember going round to my friend's house to play on their on their Mac. It was um, one of those desktops with the translucent oh, colourful yes. plastic yeah, around it. Yeah, it was like the blue one. Oh my goodness, I was obsessed with it. I feel like they should bring those back because I think there'd be a huge market for that kind of retro. Yeah, cool I look. think it
1: is interesting because if Johnny Ive does break off this relationship, I think it does feel like the real end for a particular period in tech design. I mean, he has been so influential in raising design values in consumer electronics. What Apple did with him really did change that landscape quite dramatically. And I think other companies raced to try and um, keep up. And I mean, there've been problems with that too. I think you could speak a little bit about Johnny Ives' work and how that fed into planned obsolescence, for instance. But that kind of model he designed of these perfect, intuitive, quite Dita-Rams-inflected sealed box units, they really did set the agenda for um, tech in the 2000s. But I think India, like you said, those old ones, the sort of late 90s with the colourful fans, you do think, are the current Apple products aesthetically exciting anymore? They're quite, they've almost become quite corporate, right, and how they look. I I think they're very attractive, they're nice, but we're very, very familiar with that aesthetic. It doesn't set anyone's heart racing. And if you look back at those early iMacs, you think, God, actually, Johnny Ive's work there was kind of wild. This was much more unusual. It's really strange to think that there was a tech company putting this stuff out and it was finding a huge, huge market.
0: Yeah, it will be really interesting to see what Johnny Ive does next. I mean, he was on the cover of Wallpaper magazine with uh, His Royal Highness Prince Charles. Great pals. Um, he's involved with the yeah with the Terracotta Design Lab, which seems like a very strange uh, union. But he's designed the logo for it and they are clearly um, quite simpatico on their... Uh, Belief that design should be really addressing the Mm -hmm. climate crisis. And then what's Apple going to do next? They haven't had a chief design officer since I've left back in 2019. There's Evans Hankey, who's the vice president for industrial design. And then they've got a vice president for user interface design, Alan Dye,
1: I guess I guess there are a few things to say. I think one is we've spoken about oh maybe Apple's not such a a good gig for a designer anymore. I guess what we what we're saying there is for an industrial designer, right? For someone who's into hardware, because there's lots of interesting design things around systems design and so on, and setting up these services. It's not like Design has departed the company or anything like that. I suppose it's just maybe the focus and the focus on newer things is happening in a slightly different area. So interesting, as you say, that they have a vice president for industrial design and a vice president for interface design. I think so many of the debates swirling around tech today, you know, around modularity, around design for disassembly, around customization those aren't really represented in the physical manifestation of Apple's products. In fact, Apple's products are kind of the opposite in how they look and also in terms of what you can actually do with them. They're super sealed off. It's made very difficult to repair. It's made very difficult to customise. And I know Apple have a few initiatives that are maybe looking to change that a little bit but at least in terms of contemporary tech debates and as you say the metaverse which has this really wild aesthetic these really messy clashing aesthetics often i don't i don't think apple as it stands really embodies that in any way it's it's a much more corporate look and i mean it's interesting that their stores are designed by foster and partners which if you're talking about sort of people who really led and pioneered that kind of High tech corporate architecture, which can be great, which can be really nice, but can also be a little bit bland and have issues. They're kind of an embodiment of it. And maybe Apple's products are slightly that way within the tech sphere at the moment. So, I mean, I think that's an amazing legacy for Ive, sort of incomparable what he did there. It'll be interesting to see what comes next. Tough act to follow. If they get a new chief design officer, it would be amazing if they did radically change Apple's design. Suspect they won't. They probably won't get a chief design officer, will they? They'll probably get like vice president for Ted Lasso or something.
0: Our next story um, kind of stays within the tech world, or rather, the kind of wider wider implications of this incredibly data rich and connected world that we live in um so uh on 24th of june the u.s supreme court struck down roe versus wade and this was the historic court case that was fought in the 70s that had made um abortion bans unconstitutional at a state level um and uh Thirteen states had already set up trigger laws, and these went into effect immediately after the ruling. Um, And this had some really horrendous um, implications. It immediately prevented medical practitioners um, legally from providing care. And it's a real tragedy, but also it's not just a kind of going backwards, but a going forwards into this kind of new and monstrous situation where... um, People are going to have to navigate accessing, you know, life-saving healthcare in the world of big data. Um, so it's not just kind of the rise of the religious far right, but how, how do you safely um, navigate something when everything you do online, every payment you make, every Google search you search um, could potentially uh, incriminate you?
1: Yeah, I think, like you say, it's a complete tragedy. It's terrifying, uh, awful, awful situation. Um, it's a little bit complicated. I, I, I dug a little bit into the US Constitution. I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on it. Otherwise, I'd be off making mega bucks as a constitutional <laughs> lawyer. Uh,
0: you, you have the hair to, to do a founding father's. Um, oh,
1: I could do actually. Hopefully. Yes, yes. For for, for listeners who who aren't uh, aware of my hair, it's quite long. But my understanding of it is this right to abortion, uh, which was guaranteed by Roe versus Wade, that was achieved through connecting it to the right to privacy. So a person's right to privacy also gave them the right to an abortion, which was guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Now, the fact that... um, Roe versus Wade has been overturned by the Supreme Court, and that's tied into this right to privacy. That sparked some fears uh, among cybersecurity experts that if you overturn one, you have this greater threat to the other. So most of us are carrying around smartphones, that's recording all sorts of information through all sorts of different apps all of the time. Uh, I think we all know about the dangers of that. You have your internet search history, what locations you've visited. Um, If you use a period tracking app or anything like that, that's more data, more intimate data going into this thing. And the sun fear is with these law changes at the um, state level, like you said, India suddenly some people are worried of, oh, well, what if uh, law enforcement starts trying to get technology companies to hand over this data? Like if someone, and I mean, it's a hideous (laughs) phrase to say, It, it feels really gross and unpleasant, but if someone is suspected of seeking an abortion, when abortion has been criminalised, is there suddenly pressure on those companies being brought to bear saying, we would like to know where this person has been going, what they've been looking at, and so on. So your digital payment records, your health tracking apps, these are suddenly potentially hugely incriminating pieces of data. I mean, this is dystopian in all kinds of ways. I think you put it really well, India. This isn't just retrograde and chipping away at rights that ought to be essential this is pushing us into some quite frightening new terrain
0: yeah i mean you're you're so right it's that horrible um kind of word suspected but you know there there are fears that if um people turn up Uh, to emergency rooms seeking care um, for a miscarriage and um, medical staff suspect that they may have um, tried to induce an abortion, then they could uh, get law enforcement to subpoena all of their all of their digital records. Um, There's also kind of, you know, fears that um, if law enforcement wanted to be proactive about it, they could actually um, set up kind of dragnet surveillance on people in a certain location searching for information. Um, it's it's really easy to get hold of this information currently. A reporter from Vice um, went to a data broker, um, you know, because data is mm. a commodity. It's not just potential evidence and crimes. Um, and they managed to by the data of people who'd been picked up on geolocation visiting a legal abortion clinic at a Planned Parenthood and that was just hundred and sixty dollars. So um, you know, it's it's easy to legally acquire this information. And because technology has been so sewn into our lives, it's actually very hard To escape it, I mean, you kind of sit there and you think, okay, if I had to try and access this piece of healthcare that wasn't legal in my state, how would I do it without using my payment cards? How would I do it without using my smartphone? Um, And I don't think it's because technology companies are this grand evil that have deliberately um, kind of tricked us into giving them everything that could potentially criminalize us, but the motivation of technology companies is to get you really um, dependent on their services. I think, you know, historically, they haven't always wanted to comply with law enforcement. But in, um, in bringing in all these services, all these tracking um, systems, it it just makes it really difficult now. Um, I, ju- I just think it's so ironic. I mean, you go back to Apple again, and do you remember when um, they launched the Apple Health and they forgot to include a period tracker? <laughs> so, because, the you know, this is one of, like, Apple's big things where you can kind of, like, track all your data. Everyone loves it. Everyone loves tracking their steps and their weight. Um, but uh, they didn't have any women on the team for this and they didn't include, like, a, a menstrual health... Yeah application you
1: can you can track your push-ups but oh mental no <laughs> sorry why would why would we need to do that
0: yeah they've kind of wildly overcorrected now and apparently you can apparently you can log um you know if you're if you're a person that can get pregnant you can now log your basal temperature um your cervical mucus quality which is a horrendous thing to say <laughs> into a microphone but um you know all of this information that's kind of there you know supposedly to help you track your health but really to um, help companies market kind of baby buggies at you it's just so implicit now in your digital life Um, there's period tracking apps as well I mean I haven't used those for years because I thought Mm. they were quite sus but everything that you're encouraged to do to streamline your life and you know the exchange is you give someone a bit of data in return for a kind of smoother existence is now risking criminalising people and I don't think there's any precedent really for how the companies that have set up these systems that have designed this mode of living can respond to something like this.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been some early responses from some of these tech companies, but whether it's getting to the heart of the matter or just kind of twiddling around the edges of it, it is a debate we can have. So Apple has said it will cover its employees' expenses if they have to travel out of state for medical care. Say you work in a state in which abortion is criminalised, they would pay for you to travel to another state to have an abortion. Uh, Amazon and Meta have similar policies. Policies in place. So that's, you know, we're not knocking that, that's very important. Great for their employees that that's been put in place. Your supervisor will let you take the time off work. That's a positive. Google has also promised it's going to auto-delete location data from user accounts if they visit a, um, the phrase is particularly personal medical facility, which is quite nebulous, loose phrasing, but actually maybe that's justified because this isn't just abortion clinics, it's also fertility clinics, domestic violence shelters, uh, cosmetic surgeons. Lots of places where people have good reasons to visit them. But maybe it's not the sort of thing where you want a really detailed data log of you having attended there. Um, and a couple of banks are pushing back too. So Amalgamated Bank in New York has said it's going to try and resist subpoenas from law enforcement. Um if that it suspects are related to prosecuting abortion seekers. Uh, But simply there's been silence from lots, you know. uh, As far as I know, apologies to the banks in question if they've since released anything, but JP Morgan or American Express haven't really said anything beyond quite loose commitments to protect their own staff. And again, I think we have an issue where this is all important you know, you need this, it's important to have healthcare provision and to allow your staff to um, receive the treatment that they need. But it's not really getting into that heart of the data issue that you set out, India.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of a two-tier system, especially in a country like America, where healthcare is privatised. You know, if you work for somewhere that gives you private healthcare and that protects your rights, then, you know, you might have a little bit more wiggle room compared to other people but I think you know the unfortunate thing is we'll kind of have to wait and see how it plays out at state level you know it, it will have to shake down with um, you know individual legal cases just like Roe versus Wade in the first place you know one legal case that changed the course of history now we have to wait and see mm. what other cases are brought against people
1: makes you realize quite how precarious a lot of these rights are you know they're not they're not quite as inalienable as we we might want them to be i should say if anyone is concerned by some of the issues raised here which i think ah, a lot of people will be we're including in the show notes a couple of links to some resources that might be useful for people in keeping their data safe online so do take a look at that if it's of interest I think for anyone in the design world, one of the biggest stories of the last month, and a very sad story, was the news of the death of Marcus Fares, the founder and editor-in-chief of Dezean. Uh, Marcus died unexpectedly at the end of June, and Dezean announced the news uh, at the start of July. Uh, Marcus had founded Dezean in 2006 and had grown it astonishingly. I mean, it's the world's biggest design website, world's biggest design media resource, I suppose. Marcus prior to founding Dezean, had worked within more traditional media, so he was the founding editor of Icon. And I think uh, certainly someone who was seen as a real power broker in the design world, someone who wielded an awful lot of influence through Dezean.
0: Yes, um, I think, you know, it's safe to say that he leaves a complex legacy. Um, I worked for him, for Dezean, for four years. Uh, But I think one of the standout things um, about this kind of tragic early passing was the scale of the industry's reaction, the number and the breadth of people who kind of lined up to pay tribute to him really shows the scale of what he achieved with the zine and, um, you know, quite how, you know, no one really did it like he did and um, that the kind of the... Design media world had really kind of failed to respond to the digital age until he launched this blog from his bedroom.
1: You have to say that Design is unquestionably the big success story in design media of the last twenty years. I don't think anything else is even close. It's astonishing what Marcus accomplished with it, actually. But it's it's not a platform without its controversies. So I, I think. Disine produces some fantastic journalism. People who work there, excellent professionals have broken some really important stories. It's a great resource, you know, if you're looking for breaking news within design. Disine is very good at covering these things and covering them quickly. But you can't overlook the fact, and I think Marcus spoke about this as well, that a huge amount of Dazeem's success was built upon press release journalism and churn. It was something that leaned very heavily into that online world and understood early on that pace was an important thing. And freed from all the constraints of a physical piece of journalism, suddenly you, you could just publish and publish. You could publish so much. And that's still an element of Design. They've they've done a lot more around opinion pieces recently, and and sort of more investigative journalism, which is fantastic. But this side has always been there. I mean, I think it's a platform that everyone in the design world uses and appreciates, um, but which there is also criticism of, and which Design is aware of that criticism and engages with it. People worried of well, what happens to our media when? we when we when we, we start going into this online world when you start having that relentless churn of stories when the beast can never be satisfied you have to keep feeding it you have to keep posting things to generate clicks
0: yeah it's interesting because when i joined azine it was definitely at the era where um, marcus really wanted to turn away from this um, reputation of just you know sticking a headline on a press release you know, it, it really was this microcosm of um, what you can do with digital, which is really exciting. When I got into journalism in the first place, I kind of didn't believe all of the naysayers and in the industry old hands who said, oh, you know, journalism <laughs> is dying. And it's because of the Internet. Paul Finch blathering on about how Twitter ruins journalism. But... Um, you know, at the same time, it is um it's you know, it isn't without its drawbacks. And um when you when you are part of the team that, you know, feeds that beast, it's really exhilarating, it's really exciting, but you also um you kind of see what people are interested in and it's not always uh those deeply reported features. I think that is one of those kind of interesting takeaways because with, you know, more traditional media you can always kind of imagine your ideal audience and how highbrow their tastes are but then when you can actually see the traffic uh, you realise that everyone just really wants to read about shipping container architecture Uh, and then you have to be you know if you're if you're chasing views which is how you get your revenue then you know are you going to feed people a nutritious diet of deeply reported pieces or are you going to give in and give them a micro house that they can get really angry about
1: yeah and one thing that we should say is Dazine was actually sold in 2021 it was sold to jp politica media group a, a danish media group and at the time Marcus described the website as a bastion of independent journalism i think whatever you think about the truth of that statement um it's probably worth reflecting on the fact that there aren't that many other candidate titles within design to fill that role. As a world, we have a lack of media. There is a lack of independent reporting around the field. You tend to get these either very highly specialist titles or you get lifestyle magazines. We could do with a more robust criticism, for sure. And I think, in a way, this is sort of Marcus's legacy because he was amongst the very first people... And certainly the person who took this phenomenon furthest and I think made the most of it to really see that design media was moving online and how you can uh, how you can engage with that. And let's face it, there's still a case that design really is still ahead of the pack in doing that in its embrace of new technologies. I think within design, we know there is kind of a crisis around the reporting of it, around the criticism that circles for the field. And Marcus showed a way forward, and that was very exciting and really interesting. But I don't think anyone has necessarily resolved the issues that come with it. Like, you know, churn, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the pace? How do you deal with business models? Because journalism used to be funded through advertising, but that's becoming less and less prominent. So a lot of these online platforms are tied to alternative business models, which brings opportunities, but also brings challenges. If you're also operating as a kind of show, an online showroom, if you're also operating as an online shop, these are difficulties that journalists in the past weren't necessarily having to think about. So I, th- I think that's, that's kind of, at least for me anyway, I didn't know him super well, but how I'll remember Marcus, I suppose, is someone who Pushed forward into that area and has has opened a lot of these debates up, and I think it goes without saying. All all our thoughts and feelings are with his family and colleagues at what's an immensely difficult time.
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's been a quite a a downbeat episode. <laughs> we're but all we can, depressed. Um, we can bring in our
1: fun. <laughs> the world is awful, and we're awful. <laughs>
0: Let me cheer you up then, sort of, maybe. Um, (laughs) It's the Architecture Oscars. It's the 2022 Sterling Prize shortlist.
1: It's the most wonderful time of the year.
0: Uh, Yeah, it is, if you've got loud opinions about architecture, which I definitely do. So the award recognises the building that uh, the jury thinks is the most significant of the year for the evolution of architecture and the built environment. Um, so on the shortlist this year are 100 Liverpool Street by Hopkins Architects. Um, and this is a refurb of a 1980s office building in the City of London. And um, it's kind of been zhuzhed up and turned into a kind of mixed use commercial uh, venue.
1: And they've tried to do that as environmentally responsibly as possible, right? Reusing as much of the existing building sort of structure as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think um, that, you know, is laudable um, wherever it takes place, but I think it's particularly significant that um, Hopkins Architects has done this uh, on, you know, Liverpool Street, which is um, an area that's been... you know, significantly developed by some very glitzy high-rise office buildings um, that, you know, are not great for the environment. Um, Kind of shockingly at the moment, there's still a lot of construction going on down there and um the ft ran a piece recently where they spoke to developers and were kind of like why are you still building offices there and the developers said that um (sighs) they felt there was a demand for new and more sustainable buildings so the idea was that um because the older buildings are less uh kind of sustainable in terms of energy efficiency they'll build some new towers that are more sustainable even though obviously building the towers is like a massive carbon emissions oh, well,
1: be fair india they've cracked it then come on <laughs> come on we have to <laughs> um we have to accept but, they've solved the problem
0: <laughs> well uh yeah i i think it's a it's a <laughs> it's a good statement to to have 100 yeah. Liverpool Street on the list because it shows what you can do with buildings that are already there
1: yeah so clap 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 for Hopkins Architects what's uh, what's second on the list
0: there's a Hackney New Road Primary School by Henry Hale Brown, which is um, in Desenio's traditional end of King's. It's very Road.
1: close to Desenio's last office, actually. I saw this building going up over time. It's, um, so it's, it's quite beautiful, actually. It's a primary school. But then the oddity is it used to be a fire station. When we first moved into the area, it was a fire station that got demolished. And then there's a tower on top of the primary school. Is that right?
0: i think so it's kind of part of that wider estate that's got a couple of like chipperfield towers in it and it's actually it's all very nice and attractive and done in sort of um
1: it's very mm. beautifully done totally it's just there's this slight oddity of to fund the school they had to build these kind of uh luxury residential towers rising out of the school like one of those funguses that rise out of the brains of ants and make them climb up a uh, a leaf <laughs> so so the fungus can get sunlight and thrive
0: uh, yeah I mean if you want to kind of do the social analysis of these um it's it's a very interesting kind of uh, British um, social social policy in a nutshell um, there's also the <laughs> Sands End Arts and Community Center by May Architects um, and this was a, a council project this was for Hammersmith and Fulham Council it's um you know a lovely community center which we definitely uh, need more of and then there's also um, the only the only housing project on the on the short list which we can get into in a bit is Orchard gardens in Elephant Park by Panther Hudspeth Architects. Um, And these are kind of a combination of towers, townhouses, lots of mixed levels. And um, they've been complimented for their kind of use of different shapes and um, facade finishes to kind of create something that looks quite organic, even though it was all built in kind of one go.
1: Yeah, I haven't been down there yet myself, but I've seen a couple of the images and they're quite jumbly. Uh, I don't think necessarily in a bad way. Sometimes that's quite pleasing, but it's a little bit of a, a, a hodgepodge of of different elements stuck together. Uh, it's quite a controversial development, though, isn't it? It's the um, what was it? They knocked down it's the, the
0: Haygate as part of the, the Haygate Estate.
1: The Haygate, that's it's a it, yeah. job. Difficult waters in which to yes. swim.
0: Then um, finally escaping the confines of London. Getting all the way to Cambridge, we've got the, the new...
1: <laughs> the London of the north.
0: <laughs> Indeed, a whole hour's train journey north.
1: If you're tired of London, have you tried East Anglia? It's very different.
0: There's the, the new library, um, which does what it says on the tin. It's a new library for Magdalen College in
1: Cambridge. <laughs> What's the new library? Well, there's a kind of new library... <laughs> <laughs> which we've put in, place. in
0: comparison to the to <laughs> the old good. library and the Middle aged library,
1: what's wrong with the old library? Terribly haunted, <laughs> terribly haunted.
0: Yeah, actually, this is a Neil McLaughlin, the architects. It's not a very ghost friendly library. It's very um, kind of open and uh, light timber and brickwork. It, you know, you'd,
1: it's very it's beautiful, gorgeous,
0: but you you would have a hard time haunting it.
1: Yeah, it'd be very tricky because everyone would be so relaxed. You you know, they wouldn't you they wouldn't be in the mood to be spooked. It's a tough gig for any uh, spooks out there.
0: And then um actually actually north of London, um we have the only one that's not in England, the only one that's uh you know, not south of the uh Midlands is um Fourth Valley College, um, in Falkirk, Scotland, and you know that's even further north than Glasgow, and that <laughs> is by Ryack and Hall Architects. And actually, reading through this list, I realised that um, I've had to kind of freestyle a lot of the pronunciations because uh, these aren't these aren't the big names. These aren't the big names in architects. These are some kind of new contenders, which is quite exciting to see.
1: Yeah, that's nice to see. Absolutely, uh, quite a few in there. I, I don't really know. I know Neil McLaughlin. I know um. Hopkins Architects, but a lot of the others can't say they're massively aware of their work, and that is refreshing. I mean, I think competitions like this, when they're at their best, really they should be introducing you to new practitioners and showing you things you haven't seen before. I mean, one of the things the jury has been quite keen to go heavy on this year is they want to present all of these pieces as um, paragons of sustainability and community benefit. Um In the statement, uh, RUBA President Simon Alford said, as we grapple with housing, energy and climate crises, these six projects give cause for optimism, each offering innovative solutions to the challenges of today and the future. From major capital city regeneration programmes to new visions for higher education, they all share the ambition to deliver generous architecture fit for a low carbon future. And I wonder if they're perhaps keen to hit that note quite hard because last year's winner was a little bit controversial on that respect. It was Kingston University Townhouse by Grafton Architects, um, which is a really beautiful building. I have said it's one I've actually been to visit and I think it's exquisite, it's lovely, it's very generous and the idea is it lets the public into the university so you have these more public areas and this intermingling and I think particularly in a year affected by lockdowns it it was a little bit of a statement you know have a nice public in person um, educational facility good winner in many ways the respect in which it was not such a great winner is the whole thing is a precast concrete frame you know well whatever you think about that building it it sits quite heavy It's not a sort of light construction or anything like that. And I think there were also suggestions at the time that no embodied carbon assessment had been conducted on that. So we all know the environmental impact of new build concrete construction. And townhouse wasn't necessarily this poster child for a greener architecture or a more environmentally responsible architecture. I mean you can you can argue back and forth on that. You could say it's an investment in a building that's going to last a long time and which is for a really good cause. Everything has a carbon cost. If we're going to be if we're going to build buildings like this, let's at least it, let's at least make them of quality such that they will last and they serve a good purpose. Which townhouse definitely did, but maybe maybe some of the criticism around it slightly burned reaper i don't know but perhaps they're keen to flag up something a little bit different this year
0: yeah it's interesting that you bring that up because um yeah is it is it actually a reactionary shortlist or are they trying to to kind of cover all of their bases but yeah at the same time i mean there is still you know lots to be said about how um london centric it is you know i mean are you know four of six of the most significant buildings this year in London.
1: Yeah, that is quite shocking. I I I hadn't thought of that when I looked it over, but when you brought it up I did have that thing of Oh god, actually. Yeah, that's that's not great.
0: Yeah, and then, you know, I mean, it's great to have the housing crisis mentioned but then orchard gardens you know as you meant brought up it's part of a very controversial regeneration um effort that has kind of seen um the elephant and castle center flattened and the haygate estate which is kind of one of these um 1960s uh post-war housing estates that had over a thousand socially rented homes um kind of run down, knocked down, and Lend-Lease have managed to kind of wriggle out a lot, out of a lot of their Section 106 responsibilities by claiming it's not profitable, for them to build um, more affordable or like more homes that are available at social rent. There's was only a handful of houses. I um, was part of the kind of wider developments, I should say. Orchard Gardens, I'm not entirely sure about how that breaks down um, I think that's kind of over 200 new homes that they're building how many of those are going to be made more affordable or made available to be rented at kind of social rent rates um, I can't really speak to but I think you know as a project it touches on all of these wider issues in the capital and that you kind of can't get away with with architecture, which I suppose is the problem, or one of the benefits, depending on how you cut it with big prizes, like the sterling prize is they kind of reflect the mood of architecture at the time and the things that architects are being ultimately commissioned to do, and what the architects have been able to do with that commission.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of awards at the best of times. I think they're lovely for people who are honoured. We all like a do. It's nice to be told you did a good building. Uh, and it's obviously potentially good for public outreach of the industry. You know, maybe it draws more people in. Maybe it will inspire some some actual kids who look at this and think, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to know more about architecture. I, I just think, like you say it it's a little bit silly and maybe it maybe it skates over some of the complexities which are involved in things like this, but regardless because it is my job, I will be keeping an eagle eye on who wins and no doubt we'll have some more reflection on that in a future episode yeah
0: placey bets now
1: do you have a favorite <sighs>
0: hmm this is tricky because I actually do really like the new library um and then
1: I think it's the loveliest but I think it's a hard sell to argue you know (laughs) that a lovely library in an immensely exclusive privileged sort of college is really the most significant building in the UK that year
0: yeah, I'm like, if we, if we nationalise the new library, if everyone got a new library, because I love libraries and it's so shocking to see public libraries um, kind of closing down. So uh, it can win, but only if every town gets a new library.
1: Hello, Crit listeners, Oliver here. I'm delighted to let you know that this episode of The Crit has been sponsored by Maison and Objet, one of the world's premier trade fairs for the design and interior architecture industries. The fair is due to open at its home base of Villepont Paris for its next edition between the 8th to the 12th of September. Exploring the theme of Meta Sensible, the fair will focus on projects that respond to the fusion of physical and digital living. So expect tactile retreats that embrace physical comfort, wrapped up in the aesthetics of virtual experience. In addition to the fair, visitors can also attend Paris Design Week, with nearly 400 places to visit around the city. That runs from the 8th until the 17th of September. Early bird tickets are now available on Maison-Objet's website until September the 7th. So, be smart. Be an early bird. Anyway, if this all sounds thoroughly meta-sensible to you, visit www.maison-objet.com to find out more. That's www.maison-objet.com. We'll see you there. So, on to our projects and products section. And this month, we've decided to each pick a recommendation of something we've been interested in exploring. Um, my recommendation, long-term listeners will know I'm a fan of video games. I enjoy them very much. And uh, in the last week or so, I've been playing a little bit of Stray by Blue 12 Studio and published by Annapurna Interactive.
0: I am so jealous because I do not, currently own a platform that would allow me to play this game um
1: only available on ps5
0: and i think you can get it on pc but i am I, apple is getting a lot of airtime in this episode but i am a mac gal <laughs> and um, i yeah. i mean i could do some some bootlegging but um, it's also not available on switch which is very upsetting But you get to play as a cat, this little ginger stray cat, who's exploring this kind of cyberpunk, post-apocalyptic city that um, is based off the kind of Kowloon walled city in Hong Kong. Um, And you get to kind of run around as a little cat and you knock things over.
1: There is a specific button to say meow. (gasps)
0: Um, I kind of imagine it's like Untitled Goose Game, but with cats and kind of... Elden Ring level graphics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the appeal. Um, There is a little bit of a trend for this kind of thing. And I think, first of all, I should say it's really nice to have a game that's non-violent and which is exploring some unusual subject matter. Games have opened up massively in recent years, but I think the ones we're still most familiar with are first-person shooters a lot of the time, like run-and-gun type stuff. So to have something where the premise of the game is basically just go be a cat, that is quite nice I think it's also worth connecting with some wider tendencies within design outside of video games too so this is obviously quite a flippant example because it you know it's just a lovely game where you're where you're a wee little ginger lad rushing around causing chaos um, but a lot of people within design at the moment have gotten very very interested in in whether design can interact more with other species and in more empathetic ways. You could look at someone like Alexandra Daisy Ginsburg and her work with Pollinator Pathmaker and thinking about how can we design for bees? You could look at new institutes at zooop and its ideas of making an institution that considers the needs of all species Or the decorators did a project around microbes down at Kingston University recently. Suddenly, design has really come alive with this idea of, we need to start thinking more about other species. What can we do for them? How can we be more sensitive? How can we interact in a healthier, more ecological way?
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up, because I think it's also... Um, on like a smaller scale, healthier for developers. This is um, they're an indie developer, right? And um, and they have a lot of cats that got to wander around the office and that provided inspiration for the game. And I think it's really exciting to see the um, kind of success of. Uh, not only just like a small indie developer, but one that, you know, if you've got cats in the office, then you're clearly prioritizing your um, health and happiness of your developers more than your kind of big gaming companies. You know, there's been a lot of pushback um, with Kind of big companies like Bethesda having to kind of come out and disavow crunch culture, which is where um developers are really kind of like put under extreme untenable working and living conditions in order to kind of deliver games on time. So you know I think it's it's lovely to see that success as well. Although you said that you're just running around being a cat, I've seen clips of like these scary little rat monsters that come out of the sewers and chase you.
1: India, they are absolute bees. <laughs> I hate those rat guys. <laughs> They're causing all sorts of chaos. Um, so yeah, I should say you know this this is not a particularly sophisticated example of thinking through different species. It, you know, it's very heavily gamified. You do have these little rat jerks causing issues you memorize door codes you have a little robot buddy who can help you chat to other robots so it's not like a game where you're just a cat wandering around the house doing cat things there is quite a bit of gamification going on having said that the general experience is pretty cat-like you know you move like a cat the options presented to you are cat-like you can say meow you can jump on things you can knock things off shelf shelves you can go to sleep in nice Pillows and stuff, and it does give you a slightly different view on the city. Um, so, suddenly, when you're this cat in this world, you're not looking so much at um, doors or things like that, or, or the usual signifiers in a video game or a virtual environment that would make you think, I can do something with that, I to go over and do that, or if you see a shop, I'm going to go buy something from the merchant, all of that type of thing. Instead of that, that suddenly fades into the background and what you're noticing are like really narrow ledges, like you're saying, oh, there's some guttering there, I can run along that. Or you see a tiny gap, you think, I can squeeze under that. Um, so it's quite like a fun interaction to this idea of just experiencing an, a familiar environment in some way through a different perspective. And OK, a cat is a flippant example, but I think we can all think of some perhaps Uh, perspectives that might be really useful to design and architecture for us to adopt. How much it changes the way you view that? How much the city for one type of entity is a completely different beast to how it is for another type of entity? So if you want to explore what I think are some fairly relevant and contemporary design issues, but you want to have a good fun time and be a lovely ginger lad running around, tapping things with your lovely little powerful paws... I think Stray is a good place to start.
0: That ability to kind of see the designed world around us through different eyes um, and from different perspectives actually kind of connects to what I've picked for my product launch, which is not something that I've had the opportunity to uh, see myself. Um, it's an American um, homewares company called Pottery Barn.
1: Can I ask a question? Yes. Yes. <laughs> what is pottery? Because I I hear it in, like, growing up, I heard it in so many shows and things. People go, we're off to Pottery Barn. Like, but do, do they just sell pottery? Like, I've never understood what it is. Is it just pottery? What is it? And why is it such a big thing?
0: Okay, so it's neither a pottery nor a barn, but...
1: <laughs> it's a cathedral of lies.
0: <laughs> it's like a high street furnishings chain that you will find at all kind of big American malls. Um, it's not your sort of like, well, we call it TK Maxx, but they call it like TJ's and like Marshall's. It's not sort of like, you know, bottom tier. I say it, it's like mid range, probably wouldn't normally find it being featured on a platform such as Diseño. um It's sort of furniture that has a kind of Mass appeal in some sense, I would say their aesthetic at the moment is kind of like rustic chic, you've got your sort of like Pinterest vibes, Uh, coastal grandmother, sort of nice finishes. Uh it's not sort of that mid-century modernism so much as kind of things that are designed to look sort of like lived in and cute and they run the gamut from like, you know, nice candles and throws all the way up to kind of big tables and chairs. You know, you could furnish your entire house from it.
1: Okay, got it. I'm with you. So so what have they done? What's the what's the new thing?
0: So they have released a new range that has actually kind of reimagined a lot of their staple products. Um, so that they are more accessible to people with disabilities. Yeah, so everything in this range is now compliant with the um, Americas with Disabilities Act, so... Uh, You can get a wheelchair, for example, underneath the desks or the tables. They are chairs that will help you sit down and sit up. So kind of they've got motorised and like tilting functions, but they still look very kind of stylish and lovely. There are things like adding pockets for putting things if you are using your hands to uh, use a kind of like walker or other sort of mobility aid. There are buttons that are easier to use. And the attention to detail of things like um, grab bars that you can put in a bathroom to help someone kind of access the shower or the loo that, uh, you know, don't look like something out of a facility. They're kind of like that sort of industrial chic look that everyone loves for their bathroom at the moment.
1: Got it, got it. And
0: even like mirrors that you can tilt. So if you need to look at it from a lower angle, you can tilt the mirror down.
1: Yeah, I think I'm just having a look at it now online. And one thing I found quite encouraging about this is often when companies launch ranges which are intended to sort of be more accessible to people with disabilities. They sometimes launch it as a standalone range. And that can be great because sometimes a specific product is needed, and that's really important. But some of the things you mentioned, you do just think, well, this should just be part of your products anyway. You know, when you're designing a desk, like all desks should be able to fit a wheelchair under them. That doesn't have to be a specific product. That should just be the basic standard. So, Credit to Pottery Barn. Um, I like that they do seem to have adapted existing popular styles and made those accessible rather than creating something that sometimes can feel a bit more tacked on as an afterthought. E- even if, like I said, sometimes you, sometimes you do need those specific products. That's important too. I think the one question I have is it's really good this has happened, but, like, why, why only now? Like, surely some of this stuff could have been done quite a long time ago, you know, like the desks we're talking about. And I I guess something like IKEA, their accessible homewares range, okay, it's not it's not been running for a super long time, but that was uh twenty nineteen, right? So maybe there's a little bit of an oddity that it's taken a couple of years for some competition to that to emerge.
0: Uh yeah, it's kind of weird that there's now only kind of like two big brands that are doing this um, and that they are an anom- anomalies. So I don't think, you know, it's... The bar is so low, unfortunately, it's on the floor. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that this is altruistic move. It's pretty good marketing. I think especially as a lot of homeowners are ageing um, and, you know, people prefer to try and age in place, so kind of ageing in their homes, that if you want to... You adapt your home you know it's not just people with kind know disabilities of all ages it's going to be helpful for um older people as well so you know it's nice to see uh it welcomed in and the designs being created that aren't sort of uh siloed away in a corner and hopefully it will just make people think about how they can make their homes more accessible to kind of friends and family members. You know, if you move around the world as an able-bodied person, you don't necessarily think about how many steps there are or whether it's easy to use your bathroom. It's, it's a positive thing, but it's, the, you know, it's entry-level stuff.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode, and it's been such a treat being here with you all in your ears. Uh, we're very honoured that you would uh, pop us in there.
0: Yes, whether, you know, you're replacing your beach read with your beach listening or whether you're stuck trying to commute or maybe stuck at an airport looking for something to do. And we're here to soothe you with our you know, alternately hopeful and depressing stories of design.
1: We'll be back next month, but if you would like to stay in touch in the interim, you can drop us an email. We're on at thecritatdeseniojournal.com. And we're also on social media at Disenio Journal. We look forward to hearing from you and we'll be back next time.
0: The Crit is presented by me, India Block, and Ollie Stratford. It has been produced and edited by Evie Hall. Our theme music is composed by Yuri Suzuki with Team Suzuki at Pentagram.